Thanks, Sarah. Good morning. Just to let you know, um, we are a little more crowded than we have been in the past. We've opened the overflow room that's in the youth room, so if you're feeling uncomfortable about the space or lack thereof between you and others, you're welcome to go in the youth room. We have a beautiful attendant in the youth room. Her name is Jane Gooder. And she will greet you, most hospitable person on the planet. <clears throat> I was talking to John, who was playing keyboard. Thank you to the band. It was really awesome this morning. Beforehand, and we were, I guess I was whining about uh, masks, and um, he said, uh, he said, light momentary affliction. So I said, I wonder what eternal weight of glory is being stored up for us <laughs> during a pandemic. And, and here's where my mind goes. I thought, you know, one tiny little um, benefit of a pandemic is a guy who always wanted to wear an ascot <laughs> can essentially do it <laughs> and feel okay about it. <laughs> it's not me, but it might be somebody. Will you turn in your Bible uh, or your device this morning, 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. We are starting a series uh, that will go through the fall into November called Loved Lived Out, and it's uh, from the Gospel of John. Uh, if you're having trouble, I mean from the Gospel of First, from the book, slow down, the book of First John. If you're having trouble finding First John, go to the end, Revelation, just scoot back a few pages. First John. I want to give you a little bit of context and then we'll go into the scripture. So John is an old man at the writing of First John and he's writing an epistle. He actually writes three letters uh, to some churches that likely he had charge of. So John's in charge of these churches and he's an old man and is having difficulty traveling. So he writes letters and has to count on those letters we now know inspired by the Holy Spirit to encourage and exhort the churches over which he's been given oversight. And what we think was probably happening uh, during this time in the churches that John was overseeing is there was kind of a separatist group. You know, uh, rascals have been around since the beginning. There was this group that had separated from one of the churches that John was leading, and they were trying to lead others also away from the church that John was leading, and specifically away from what John knew because had been revealed to him by Jesus was the truth. And this group was preaching things like, you can know God the Father without Jesus the Son. You can live a sinless life without ever um, experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus. In other words, you can do it in the flesh without, um, without the, um, the power and the forgiveness of Jesus, the Son. The death of Jesus and forgiveness that came from it is not required. What they were essentially preaching was a Christianity without tears, kind of a no-repentance faith. Kind of like just, you know, uh, let's make this happy. Let's not get too down. Um, let's not go through all this death business, suffering. And one of the key things missing from their preaching was the emphasis that Jesus put on love. And so what you see in First John is this powerful emphasis on truth and on love. And so he's writing this, uh, this uh, letter to encourage the believers that remain in the church, you're the true ones. You are following Jesus. You are in the faith. 
It may look easier over there, but you're walking in the truth. And he was specifically encouraging them, this is what your life will look like when you follow Jesus. Your life will look like love lived out. Now, that's our own trendy title. That's not what he said, but it really works well. John was reminding them that the basis of our life in God is the revelation of Jesus the Son. And so just as in his gospel, the gospel of John, he starts the same way in 1 John. And he, he just, it's like, it's like if he could, John is taking the people who are reading the letter, taking them by the, you know, loving scruff of their little necks and looking at their eyes and saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Don't get distracted by this other stuff. Look at Jesus. And he reminds us that it's the revelation of Jesus the one and only, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, who is the foundational reality of our lives in God and our lives in the world. He's saying, you want eternal life? It's wrapped up in this one man, God, Jesus. And he, he fixes on Jesus at the very beginning of the book. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to jump right in. Father God, Thank you for preserving this scripture. God, I ask that you, your hands, would raise our eyes and we could see the beloved Jesus and know that we are beloved in your sight. Jesus, let us see your eyes of love and truth peering into our souls and let us do it without human fear, but just the fear of the Lord. And Holy Spirit, will you come and direct uh, me as I speak and us as we listen, discern, and obey. Amen. So rather than reading the whole scripture, I'm going to read three sections and make some, some uh, comments, and then we're going to enter into a corporate uh, application. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched... This we proclaim concerning the word of life, speaking about Jesus. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Isn't that interesting how that keeps repeating? What we have seen and heard, so that you may also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So John is just launching in, you know, like right at, the, Jesus was incarnate from before the foundation of the world. He was with the Father. He's now been revealed. John says, this is what we're pointing out. This is our foundation. It's like first things first, people. It's all about Jesus. And he says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard. There's a real adamant emphasis that John has on this physical. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. I witnessed him. You wonder, you know, what's the, what's the point there? Well, one of the other things that we know about this group of people that was kind of seceding from the church is we know that everything that they were preaching, they based on spiritual vision, which they claimed. 
they had they claimed they had visions from God, and therefore these visions were leading them into to denounce the you know some of the elements that. Uh, the crucial elements of the faith that John had imparted to his people. And so John makes it a point. I mean, he's like really adamant, right? Hey, hold on. We're not talking about a vision here. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him with my ears. My eyes were opened. I mean, he, he could just as well have said, my head lent, uh, leaned on his breast. I felt his breath on me. So it's important for John to say, we've seen and heard this. Now, remember, so I want to make a big point here. These people were claiming spiritual vision to give them truth that was outside of what we know is true. I'm not saying anything bad about visions. I love visions. God speaks to me through visions. God spoke to us through Nate in a vision. John wrote the book of Revelation. Talk about your vision, right? But his point here is, what I'm writing to you right now is not about vision. This is not what I think about Jesus. This is what I know about Jesus. This isn't just an idea or a, you know, I kind of thought maybe, or I had this, you know. No, I was with Jesus. Just to emphasize the point, if you remember Acts 4, Peter and John, the same John, had just seen God uh, uh, heal a beggar, um, sick, lame from birth. They'd just seen it happen in front of their own eyes at, at the temple gates, right? And the, the religious leaders and the temple guard were ticked off and they tossed him in the clink because they had been preaching, hey, you want to know how this happened? This happened through Jesus, the one who died and rose again and through faith in his name. And so the religious leaders are like, man, this is really bad for business. Jesus is really getting lifted up. Now there's power associated with his name. So they get thrown in jail. When they're just about to be released, uh, the temple guards give them just a, a beating for good measure on the way out. And then they warn them, it says, not to speak any longer in this name. No longer talk about Jesus. And here's what Peter and John say, Acts 4.20. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? I don't know where they're pointing, but they mean Jesus. To you or to him? You judge it. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So it's, it is just this same John who is so stuck on this encounter that he had with living truth. And it, it can't help but spill out of his life. I think that's the thing, one of the things that really gripped me this week just in preparing for this is the way that the encounter with Jesus could not be thwarted from spilling out of John's life. He got touched and it had to go somewhere. It's like our bodies can't contain what God gives. And so it spills over. Why this big emphasis on Jesus living and active? Further in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. John is saying, here's why I'm making a big deal about Jesus. Because without Jesus, we can't know one another. Without Jesus, we can't come into relationship with God. We know that from the Gospel of John. Without Jesus, we can't truly know one another. 
Fellowship specifically, as used by John here, means this. Christians share together in the same mind as God in Christ. When John says, I'm, I'm proclaiming this to you so that you'll have fellowship with God and with us, he's saying, I want you to get this so that you have access to the mind of Christ in the fellowship. Where do you think unity comes from? Unity does not come when we all agree on something in the natural. Unity comes spiritually through Jesus and Jesus alone. When the mind of Christ is revealed among us, which still may not mean we all agree, but we can love and be towards one purpose and one goal. That's deep fellowship, real community and true unity. Fellowship with God and others doesn't begin with Jesus and then move on to bigger and better things. So I just want to say that again. We're launching groups today. It's a lot about getting connected with one another, but I just want to say it from the front here. Fellowship with others doesn't begin with Jesus and then move on to bigger and better things. Jesus is the biggest and the best. So when I know Ron, when we are in fellowship, it's not because we said, hey, you're a Christian, so am I good. Now let's talk about all the other stuff. We relate to one another through Jesus. Our fellowship is a spiritual fellowship. Our brotherhood is a spiritual brotherhood. I want to yell. Ah! <laughs> Didn't want to hurt anybody's ears. <laughs> Think about that, and I make the emphasis again on Jesus because God does it, Jesus does it, John does it, but also because true fellowship with one another means that I can look at David and Delena or Linda. I can look at them, and I can call them out through Jesus to be who Jesus created them to be. See, if we start with Jesus and go somewhere else, then all we have is the Enneagram. I got nothing against the Enneagram. I love it. But that's not eternal truth, right? Not, we don't relate to one another primarily through the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or whatever. We relate to one another through Jesus. So I can say to Delena, you know what, Delena? I love you. Grow up. She does it to me. Because Jesus made you somebody different than what I'm seeing right now. I can see that as a loving brother. I can say that as a loving brother. Does that make sense? That's, that's why this Jesus thing is really big in our fellowship. Forget Jesus and you can forget real community. And you can forget fellowship with God in your own soul being built up. The result of all this fellowship, verse 4, verse 4. He says, I'm proclaiming this to you so that our joy can be complete. There's, a, there's an excursus I could make, but I won't here. Another time on joy, but I have to point out what the scripture is so clear about. Just like Jesus saying, you know, I'm giving you these commands about love and obedience because I want your joy to be complete. John's doing the same thing. I want you to focus on Jesus. I want you to drive hard after Jesus. I want you to speak to one another in love through Christ. I want you to get this fellowship because the end result is your joy will be complete. 
Joy is a good thing. <laughs> Terry and I were talking about joy. We had 40 seconds till, you know, we were on. And um, this is fellowship in Jesus. She's telling me a very difficult thing happening in some people's lives that they know in Burundi. And she's saying, but joy is bigger than that. I mean, this happened 40 minutes ago. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> joy. Joy is bigger than that, right? It's for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So joy motivates us to look to Jesus. So I'm just going to say to us again this morning, Indie Vineyard, wherever you are, that room, this room, your room, look to Jesus again. Let's turn back to Jesus. If anything has distracted your vision, if anything has distracted your vision, your gaze set on the risen Christ, today's an invitation to repent, to turn away from what's captured you and turn back, to turn off any lesser lights and look at the light again. Moving on, verse uh, 5 to 7. This is the message we've heard from him, and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin." So here is the message of the joy-filled Jesus to the church. God is light, and in him is no darkness. John is clearly not saying that darkness doesn't exist, right? He's not like pretending there's no darkness, there's no darkness. No, John's not saying that darkness doesn't exist. John's saying that darkness in the life of a believer is incompatible with union with Jesus the Son. He, he's just putting it out real boldly. If you claim that you live in the light and Jesus is in you, you are the light of the world now, but you walk in darkness, then basically you are lying to the world and the truth isn't in you. You can't live out the truth if you're not living in the light. That's what he's saying. You just, it doesn't work that way. To claim that we have fellowship or union with God, but walking in the darkness is to, is to live a lie. Now, it is important that we understand this phrase, because we're going to deal with this a couple of times in 1 John. This kind of, man, he sounds so bold. I mean, what does it mean, walk in darkness? And most of us are thinking like, yikes, there was a little dark period of yesterday or this morning. I mean, I think it probably is meant to make us just a tad nervous. That's called the fear of the Lord. But I want you to understand, so the specific Greek word, peripateo, you can just say that when you want to spit at people, but not during a pandemic. <laughs> specific Greek word, walk, is the standard word that anyone would use talking about walking around in the world like this or figuratively to walk where you walk in life. But when it's used in this way, specifically this way, I won't tell you exactly, 
specifically this way with darkness and a preposition, specifically what that means to walk is to frequent or to stay in the place of. That's what he's saying. John is not saying if you ever sin, if you ever let in any darkness, you can't possibly know God. Because he'll contradict himself if that's what he's saying in about three verses. Right? What he is saying is, if you are frequenting sin, if you are hanging around there, if, you, if a part of your daily routine is the same unrepentant sin over and over and over again, but you claim in, you live in the light, you're lying. And you're living a lie in the world. Unrepentant walking in darkness is incompatible with fellowship with God. Maybe for some of us this morning, this is your wake-up call. You ever have a moment in your life where you're in something, may not even be sin, it just may be stupidity, foolishness, and you think to yourself, what am I doing? Anybody else ever had that? Four of us have really experienced life out there. Some of us, today's our wake-up call. This is God saying, beloved, what are you doing? This is incompatible with the light that I want to pour in and through you. Let's not do that anymore. But if we walk in the light, that is, we walk in God as God would walk, then we have fellowship with one another. To look to Jesus is to live in light. To look to Jesus is is to live in light. So it seems clear your spiritual life has a big impact on your social life. Post that on Facebook. Your spiritual life, your depth in God will have impact on your social life, your, the way you walk with other people in the world, right? Now we know that sin messes up our relationships with people. If you're a husband or a wife or a human, you know that. But on the positive side, the deeper we walk with Jesus, the richer our fellowship with, with his people. It's like um, if you've ever tried to learn a language. If you've ever tried to learn a language when Jane and I were missionaries a couple places, we had language tutors. And what I recognize is the more time I spent speaking to my tutor, who was from that country, the better I could relate to the citizens of that country. It's just like that with Jesus. The more time we spend connecting with Jesus, our tutor in life, learning the language and the, and the ways of heaven, the deeper and the richer fellowship we have with the citizens of heaven. Right? I mean, and it's why we say sometimes we have an individual responsibility before the Lord because we have a corporate calling as a church. What you do has impact on us. What I do has impact on you. I know that. And I just think this is a little bit of a wake-up for us. Like, recognize you have responsibility for your spiritual life. When, if God's calling you deeper, go deeper. Not just for you, but for us and for the kingdom. So our lives rooted in God and lived out in light will bear the fruit of obedience and infuse grace into our relationships with others. But there's more. Because he goes on to say, 
The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. We have fellowship with one another when we walk in the light, but also the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. It's like John knows, hey, I just hit you with, if you walk in darkness, you're living a lie. But then he says, when you walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus purifies you from all sin. There might be some dark uh, areas around you, some dark dealings at times, but that's different than living there, frequenting there, making your home there. He's saying, when we live in the light, then this blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And then, as I was reading it, this is the way my brain works, it's like John is having his own session of psychotherapy or free association because he says, purifies us from all sin. Ooh, that reminds me of sin. And he says now, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My paraphrase of that, sort of shorthand, pride breeds conceit. Confession invites cleansing. Pride, hey, no, no sin here. Uh, breeds deceit. I'm going to be living a lie. I'm lying to myself. Bad enough when you lie to others, but when you lie to yourself, your life is a lie. But confession releases cleansing. It invites the cleansing of God. It's the very same idea as the previous verses. If we claim to have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, that means we make a constant habit of sin, we lie to the world and we can't live in the truth. At the same time, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. So to claim light but walk in darkness is to lie to the world and render our witness unpowerful. We, we ruin our witness when we say we walk in light, but darkness follows us or we follow it. To claim light but walk in darkness is to lie to the world. We must live in light to live out truth. But I know it's a hard word. I cried in the, in the, in the preparation of it. To claim sinlessness is to lie to ourselves and to block the work that truth is meant to do in our own lives. If we come to God or to ourselves in God and think nothing needs to change here, I'm good then we are lying to ourselves and we're blocking the grace of God from doing its work. And I say that because James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Hypocrisy damages our witness in the world and pride blocks the work of God in our souls. It's just how it works. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and he'll forgive us our sins and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. To confess our sins simply means to agree with God about what is true. It's all it means. 
It just means, God, you know what's true because you have seen and heard everything in my life, and I'm just going to be honest about it. I'm just going to face the brutal facts. I still struggle with fear. I still bow to fear. I still walk in insecurity. Whatever your issue might be, confession is just agreeing with what's true. Because here's what we know from Scripture and practice to be true. Our reality, we have been made righteous in our position before God, 100% righteous in our position before God because of the death of Jesus, our faith in Jesus, and the cleansing and imputation, that's the word imputation, of his righteousness onto us. Believers, God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Perfect. The concurrent reality is this. We live in a body and we live in a world that's still stained by sin and so we still sin. That's why he says, don't claim you don't sin. That's just dumb. Well, he calls it a lie. I say just dumb. But to confess my sin is to agree with God about what's true. When I own my sin, I can be cleansed of my sin. Terrible illustration that just popped into my head. You get it. Sorry. It's like a baby in diapers. When we own our sin, we can be cleansed of our sin. As long as we deny it, we're going to stink. <laughs> and I think that's the, I don't know if that's what John was thinking, but that's how it comes to me. We just got to own it. Just agree, God, you know, you see, here I am. Now I need you to take me to the table. And I need you to cleanse my most intimate parts. I've made a mess. I'm just going with the analogy. I've made a mess and I really need your cleansing. The more honesty, the more cleansing. It's like uh, Peter. When Peter is, um, John 13, uh, Jesus, it's the Last Supper, and Jesus is just about to um, wash the disciples' feet. And Peter sees what's going on. He sees this one that he now knows is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He sees him you know, taking off his outer garment, putting the towel around his waist, kneeling before him and starting to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, no. Peter's notorious for telling God what he can and can't do, right? No, this will never be. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash you, you can't have any part of me. And at that moment, it's like the lights come on for Peter and then Mr. Extreme, he's like, well, then don't just wash my feet. Do my hands and my head. I mean, let's do the whole thing. And I think that's confession. Like, Jesus, I don't want you just to touch this one little thing. I want you to touch it all. I want to be purified from all unrighteousness. Now, I want to take the next couple minutes, and I want to tell a little story. It's a personal story to me and to the church. And I want to walk into immediate, individual, and corporate application of 1 John 1, 1 to 10. 2019, um, uh, an issue was posed to the elders of the vineyard. And the issue was essentially this. There seems to be a disparity between the gifts that we've been given as a church 
the, you know, the people, the resources, the power, the authority, sort of the birthright, it seems to be a disparity between that and the results of our ministry, the fruit of our ministry. It's like, you know, we have a new objective, we'll, we'll start a new a vision or something, and things will happen, we'll launch something, and then we hit some sort of a ceiling. There's some sort of blockage, and we can't maintain momentum, and then ministries die off only to, like, we'll do another thing, we'll do another thing. And so the elder team commissioned a team of intercessors and prophetic people to go to the Lord and ask, to the, ask the Lord on behalf of the church, have we partnered with anything, spiritual or natural, that has allowed this blockage? Are we partnering with a, a spiritual ceiling? Is there anything we're doing that's causing this lack of fruit, this disparity between resources and fruit? And God, would you reveal the source of that disparity? And would you clear the path for us so we could have increased clarity about vision, obedience to what God says, and kingdom fruitfulness? That team, we imagined, would take a couple of weeks and come back to us 15 months later. Um, we got a report in the last few months. The elders and the staff have been engaging with that report from that team. And the elder team agreed that we needed to bring the main points of that team's report to the church because this is a we thing. It's not just an I, me thing or a we, you thing. It's a we thing. It's an us thing. When one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all rejoice. We're connected in Jesus. We're one body. Before I go further, I want to take 20 seconds and speak to those who are like brand new at the church. <laughs> Welcome. We are so glad you're here. You came in and you thought this is the greatest church in the world. And it is. <laughs> um, this is family business. And if you're here today, you're part of our family. And this is just us wanting to be completely real and authentic, vulnerable, and as humble as we know, going as low as possible, so that nobody who calls the vineyard home lacks any spiritual resource to do what Jesus has told us to do, so that we actually live out the calling of this church and every individual therein. So welcome. You may not feel any of this, but thank you for being here. Pray for us who do feel some of it. So the staff of the church agreed, and I won't go into a long story, but the, independently of this elder thing, the Lord was speaking to our staff this summer and specifically inviting us to repent of places where we, either individually or as a staff, had partnered with apathy and a lack of follow-through. And it grieved us. It was not a fun meeting. It was not a fun day. It, and, and the Lord led us to repentance, and we repented of those things. God showed us some of the ramifications of partnering with those sins and inaction. And then God gave us a page full of declarations about the beauty and the truth of the Indy Vineyard. It, it was awful, and it was beautiful. And as the senior pastor, I want to invite you all into the beauty of that. You can determine the road to that, but I want to invite you into the beauty of that. Um, Lynn and Jonathan, if you're here, can you guys come and play? We're going to, 
I'm going to read some things. We're going to do some repentance. We're going to have some time just to examine ourselves before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. When God convicts us of our sin and he allows us to be sorrowful, he allows sorrow in our lives, it, it leaves us in a place where we're open and cleansed without regret. In other words, we hold nothing back. We say no to self-protection. Forget pretending everything's okay. Guess what? It's not all okay. Sorrow, when allowed by God, godly sorrow leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow leads to death. In other words, if you just scour yourself, beat yourself up, will yourself to do better while despairing of any hope, you get death. So let's not do that. No self-recrimination, no condemnation. Let's not walk in judgment. Let's not do any of that self-pity stuff. We've all done enough of that. But let's allow the Holy Spirit of God to come and do his work and to speak to us. Isaiah 57, 14 and 15. The Lord speaking to the leaders of Israel, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Why? Why does God draw near to the contrite, to the sorrowful, to the lowly in spirit? It goes on. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The Holy One is near to the humble one. The Holy One draws near to the humble one. God's inviting us to repent so that he can revive our hearts and revive our spirits. We cry out for revival. We pray for revival. Repentance is the pathway to revival. So I'm gonna ask you to stand if you need to sit after a while, you can. I just want you to be free to take a posture of listening. I'm going to take some more time, another 10 or 15 minutes probably. And I want to invite you to ask yourself before the Lord um, three questions. They'll be on the screen. I'll speak them out. And I'm going to leave some time. And again, you need want to kneel, you want to sit, Lie down, whatever you need to do. The Holy Spirit is present among us. He loves us. He longs for our cleansing and he wants to empower us. Three questions. God, have I settled in any way in my spiritual life? God, have I settled in any way in my spiritual life? By this, I don't mean a settling of contentment, I mean a settling of apathy. God, have I settled in any way 
in my spiritual life. Just listen. clearly and he says yes you've settled in your spiritual life and ask the Lord Lord what do you want me to do what action would you have me take God what more are you wanting from me right now what are you calling me to do the fire of radical belief. Have I embraced the fire of radical faith to help you understand that some further questions Lord where have I chosen safety over freedom God where have I chosen not to have difficult but necessary conversations. God, where have I justified my action or inaction with human wisdom? God, how would you have me steward the authority and the power that you've given me in Christ? How would you have me steward, be faithful with the authority and the power that you've given me in Christ? When I gather on Sunday with the church, in smaller groups, as the church, or while ministering in the world. God, how would you have me steward the authority and the power that you've given me in Christ? speaking to you. I want to urge you, write down what you're hearing. Stay with the Lord. 
I'm going to now uh, give you a, a briefer version of the report that the team gave us. I'm going to read a couple of recognitions, a couple of insights, convictions, and then I'm going to read a statement of repentance. If the Lord shows you that you've partnered with something that I say, then I'm just going to invite you to repent too. Whether you want to do that silently or aloud, I'll read them aloud. And I ask you to just open your heart, allow God to speak to you about any way that you individually have partnered with these sins, these attitudes, or these omissions. And I have three. Number one, aspects of the original birthright and blessing of this vineyard church and the wider vineyard movement have been allowed to wane. Aspects of the original birthright and blessing of this vineyard church and the wider vineyard movement have been allowed to be diminished. We've allowed a commitment to deep community and the practical outgrowth of community, loving people well, no matter what, to diminish in priority. God, I repent of any way that I have allowed a commitment to authentic community and Jesus-style love of people to fade in my life. Number two, a spirit of doubt that masquerades as caution. A spirit of doubt that masquerades as caution. Team said we've, they felt like the Lord said we've allowed a sort of delusion to settle into the church. Like, hey, we're a pretty good church, you know. We're doing our best. We're, we're going at it. We're better than a lot of churches. And, and no radical change is really required here. The settling is not intentional, but if it's left unchecked, it can lead to deception. And while creating a safe environment for anyone from any place to come in here and be in God's presence is a good thing and something we'll continue to do. If allowed to couple with any form of doubt or unbelief, safety becomes at odds with freedom. And that results in a decreasing passion for spiritual life and a lack of discipleship and accountability for personal growth in our church, in our own lives. I want to repent. God, I repent of any way that I have partnered with doubt, apathy, or a lack of accountability for personal passion for Jesus and growth in my love and my service of him. God, in place of doubt, unbelief, and apathy, I ask you, God, for the fire of radical faith.
We've been unclear and or uncommitted to adequate commissioning and care of people and ministries within the church. And we've allowed a maintenance of the status quo to keep us at times from recognizing things God wants to do. God, I repent of any way that I have partnered with a dishonoring of people or ministries and or any settling for less than your perfect will and destiny for this church body. God, I willingly surrender I willingly surrender to you. And God, this day I choose to partner with your call to encounter your love and your power and to give them freely and boldly to the world. Now, God may speak other things to you. That's what he's spoken to us. I want you to continue to listen to the Lord and do what he says, but I want you to hear the good news. So stand and receive the good news of the kingdom. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. In the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. You are cleansed and you are free. with this. If I can have the ministry team come forward, we may want to pray for some people. I was talking to Lynn, who had a large group of people worshiping here this morning. There's a lot of activity of the Lord in the place, a lot of stirring, this uh, sense of uh, grace. And um, she reminded me of something that Jacqueline, uh, one of our pastors, had said Monday morning in our prayer time, early 6 a.m., she'd said that, you know, that God's inviting us to lean on him in a special way. And that passage from Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5, came to me. And it says this, Who is this coming out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And when, when I prayed it in the room before the service, I thought, this is, this is a big day for the vineyard. I, I'm just going to say it's a big day for the vineyard and maybe a big day for many of you. And the Lord's, the Lord's looking at us individually and as a church. And I, I mean it, it's, it's rhetorical because it's the Lord speaking. He's like, wait, who is this coming out of the wilderness? Who wants to leave wilderness? Coming out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved. 
There's no better picture of a posture of grace than a, an individual created in the image of God, recognizing their brokenness, but walking with the strength they've been given while leaning on their beloved. That is grace. And I think today we are walking out of the wilderness. We don't do it on our own. We don't make our own path. It's not our human zeal. It's zeal for the Lord's house that will consume us. And we're walking out leaning on our beloved. And I just want to pray for us that we would be a people constantly leaning. So Lord, we uh, submit ourselves to you. God, you make times and seasons. You bring words. You bring fruitfulness. Holy Spirit, come. Here are your cleansed people. Fill us again. Fill us again. Fill us again. God, let your grace overwhelm us in this place today. Let your grace overwhelm every person watching or listening right now. Let your grace overwhelm every, everyone in the overflow room. Let's pray, God, for a season now of grace. And Lord, don't ever let us stop leaning on Jesus. If you want someone to pray for you today here in the room, lots of people on the ministry team, if you're in the overflow room and you want to come over, we'll create space. If you want someone to come pray for you, just, just do it. It's a good time. It's a good time to be clean before God. If you have some encouragement for someone in the room, give it before you go. I pray for God's blessing of peace, the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit, and a filling of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God down upon you. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen.